When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, Pulitzer Prize-winning humor writer Dave Barry, one of the funniest people alive, talks a little about his latest novel, Swamp Story, using it mainly as a springboard to talk about his crazy home state of Florida, and from there, about some of the problems facing our nation in general, and what Dave would do to fix them if by chance he ever gets the authority to do so, which he says we should all pray he never does. And finally, Dave assures us that the one promise he can make is that nobody will come away from this talk with any useful information whatsoever. And I think that about covers it. Here's Dave Barry closing the 2023 Sun Valley Writers Conference. I've been out in the audience for the last three days, and I cannot tell you what it feels like to stand on this stage with what has to be the largest collection of potted plants in central Idaho. I know you're worried after this is over, they're all gonna be released into the wild. Many of them are artificial, but they will have to learn to survive out there. That's nature's way. (laughs) Anyway, it's great to be back in uh, Sun Valley. Um, Michelle Kaufman, my wife Michelle, and I love it here. Uh, We come here every year. Whether we're here at the Writers Conference or not, we have thought many times about uh, buying a home here. The problem is uh, we don't have a hedge fund. Um, (laughs) You know, you're thinking, like, who, who doesn't have a hedge fund, you know? We made some bad choices. Here we are, you know. (laughs) Housing is very expensive here in the Valley, as you, I'm sure, know. I have a solution to that. I think, if you've been here a while, you notice there's lots of large rustic homes. Rustic homes are like eight to ten rustic bedrooms. (laughs) Rustic fitness centers, you know. Move into one of those. Nobody's there half the time. They're out hedging their funds, you know. <laughs> and even if they come home while you're there, they won't find you. That's, that's how big these rustic homes are. Anyway, anyway, we love it here. I, I love this writer's conference. I go back a long way here. Not quite as long as Ridley, but a long way. I was here once on a panel with, uh, with Herman Melville. And... <laughs> No, but I do feel old when I come here. I, I just turned 76, so, yeah. No, why? You don't need to apply. You just don't die, and you get to be 76. Um, well, you know they say 76 is the new 73, so. <laughs> I try to look on the good side of it. It's not, you know, aging, you kind of have to do it, but there are some positive things. Like, you get a sense of, of perspective, um, like, when people say, if we don't do something about this planet, it will be uninhabitable. 
in 25 years. Uh, when you're a young person, you think, whoa, that's, that's bad. When you're 76, you go, 25 years, I can live with that, you know? <laughs> so that's good. And grandchildren, I have, we have two grandchildren, um, nine and four, and I like that. It's a lot of fun, they're great. Uh, they like to play with you. The littler they are, the more they like to play with you. And that's good too, except for where they want to play with you, which is the floor. <laughs> and when you're 76, the floor is like North Korea. <laughs> you don't just go there on the spur of the moment, you know, so. <laughs> I've been honored to be asked to give the uh, Frank McCourt talk this year, and um, I was stunned when I saw that the theme of the conference this year is the nature of truth. I'm like, did these people never read anything I wrote? You know, <laughs> I made everything up. I, there was never, but I think there's a purpose to this, though, because it's so many of the talks you've heard from this stage and from the tents have been inspirational and full of information and wisdom, and this is not that talk. <laughs> okay, this is going to like be the opposite of that talk. You will come out of here stupider than you came in. <laughs> That's the only promise I'll make to you now. But I am honored to give the Frank McCourt talk. I was proud to call Frank McCourt a friend. Um, I didn't know him, but... <laughs> I also call Taylor Swift a friend, you know. <laughs> no. I knew Frank pretty well. Um, I got to know him right here in Sun Valley, and Ridley and I sort of recruited him. He kind of volunteered himself to be in this uh, rock band that Ridley and I are founding members of called the Rock Bottom Remainders, which is, it was started in 1992. There's a lot of good authors in this band. Uh, Stephen King, Amy Tan, Mitch Albom, Scott Turow, Ridley, of course, uh, Roy Blunt Jr., a lot of good authors, a lot of very good authors. We're not a good band. Um, our genre, Roy Blunt Jr., another founding member, calls our genre hard listening music. <laughs> I always say we play, I call it the rumor method of music, which is we're all holding an instrument and playing something. And then a rumor goes around the band that there's been a chord change. So we all changed to another chord, not necessarily at the same time or to the same other chord, but anyway, the question we get asked the most, Ridley will, will confirm this, is, is what's Stephen King like? We, we've spent many hours with Stephen um, on the road, when, and uh, he's really a pretty regular person, normal person, very, very smart, um, very good sense of humor, has read everything. He sometimes takes uh, liberties with lyrics. Uh, and, and we do this one song called uh, Last Kiss. We used to do it with, with Stephen. It was one of those teenage death anthems that was popular in the late 50s, early 60s, where there's a car crash, it's tragic, the teenagers. And um, we were doing it one night, and we actually weren't sounding terrible for us. And Stephen is singing it, and we get to the car crash part of the song, and then Stephen sings... When I awoke, she was lying there. I brushed her liver from my hair. <laughs> Which is not the right lyrics, you know? <laughs> but anyway, Frank heard about the band, knew about the band, whatever. And here's Sun Valley, Ridley and I, and I think Mitch Album was here that year. We had put together kind of a little pickup band and, and with the help of the Writers' Conference, organized a gig, uh, which is technical music talk, 
I've done two now, chords and gig. Um, in, in downtown Ketchum, I don't remember the bar, but they, they agreed to let us come and play, and so we, we, we set it up. And Frank came up to us and said he wanted to do a song because he played the harmonica. And he had brought a harmonica, he showed us his harmonica, and, and he said he wanted to do the song Love Me Do by the Beatles. And we looked at his harmonica, it was the key of C, so that means you play that song in the key of G. That's the way it works with the harmonica. And uh, we go, okay, Love Me Do in G. So we practiced Love Me Do in G. We, we did the only song we did practice, to be honest. <laughs> so comes the night, and a whole lot of people, because we had told people here about it, People from here went down, people from the town showed up. The place was packed, there were people spilled out onto, the straight, out onto Route 75. It was just a big, big crowd. And it was going great, and we're playing, and then we, we, we know, comes a big moment, we say, ladies and gentlemen, Frank McCourt. And you know, up he comes, and with his harmonica, and I go, he's standing right next to me, Frank's gonna sing, I mean, play, play for you, we're gonna do Love Me Do by the Beatles. And we're getting ready to play, and Frank goes, I don't think that's the one. And I go, which one, which one is the one, Frank? And he goes, this one. Which is, I should have known better. So I said, do you mean I should have known better? And he goes, that's the one. Of course, we didn't know I should have known better. But we had Frank there, he had his harmonica there, so he started playing, and we, we got the crowd singing, and the whole of downtown Ketchum sang, I should have known better with Frank McCourt. And that remains, maybe, even though it wasn't really literary, uh, the highlight of all my book conferences here in Sun Valley of Frank McCourt. So, so he is one of the many Wonderful authors I got to meet here, and that's, the, that's why all authors, this is uh, their favorite of all the writers' conferences. This is their just not because it's beautiful, not because you people are great and you are, you're incredible audiences, but because they, they let us sort of hang out here more than anywhere else, and you get to talk to other authors quite a bit, and that's fun to do, and Michelle and I have made friends here, um, and I've heard some wonderful stories here. You remember the David McCullough, the great David McCullough, the historian, used to come here regularly, and uh, I was having dinner with him one night. They, they give us these lovely dinners at rustic homes. After. <laughs> and, and, and David and I got to talking about book tours. You know, book tour, authors go on book tours, and we all like to bitch about it, you know. Like, and uh, we were trading stories about how, like, often when you're in a book tour, the people that are talking to you about your book uh, haven't read your book. And sometimes they haven't read any book. You know, they're just... <laughs> And, uh, and he told me the best story when he was promoting uh, The Path Between the Seas, which was his wonderful book about the building of the Panama Canal. This, he came out in 1978. This was years later when I was talking to him about it. But, and he told me when he was promoting that book, he was on a morning TV show, and the guy interviewing him clearly you know, didn't know who he was, didn't read the book and whatever, just was reading the questions on the prompter. And, uh, and at one point he asked David, how did he feel, how did David feel about the United States turning the Panama Canal over to the Republic of Panama, which was the big issue of the day? And David's answer was, I, he said, I think in a sense, the Panama Canal will always be American territory, just like Normandy Beach. And there's this pause, and the guy looks at him and says, who is Normandy Beach?
so. I have a book tour story also, and it kind of relates to a, do we, how, how many of you are here for Abraham Verghese's wonderful talk the other day? Guys, we, we all pretend to like him, but we hate him because he's a doctor and a writer. You know, like we can't do any of those things as well as he does. But anyway, um, no, Abraham's an, an amazing guy. But he, he, told, he talked about Oprah, how Oprah, like, loved his book, like, loved his book. And, like, if you order her, his book, she will deliver to your house his book. That's how much Oprah loves his book. And, like, that's what every author wants. You want Oprah to love your book. So, anyway, I have an Oprah book tour story. Um, I, I was uh, on a book tour, and I was in St. Louis. And I... Uh, got a call from my um, publicist saying that the Oprah show was trying to get in touch with me about the show. And of course, you go, yes, of course, you want to be on the show. And they wanted me for a panel. I mean, the, what you really want is to be like the book pick and all that, but you'll take being on the show in any capacity. And Oprah will at least touch your book, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so the producer from the Oprah show calls me up and says, we're doing the show tomorrow, and we, we're hoping you can be on the panel. The show is called Writing Wrongs. And we're going to ask the panelists to confess to something they've done wrong and then make it right during the show, okay? So that was, that was the idea. She said, do you have anything that you could do on that show? And I immediately thought of something I could do. And what it was is a few years earlier on a book tour, <clears throat> I had been in a Hyatt hotel and I saw a sign in the bathroom. And it was like, you know, it's like a plastic V-shaped sign. And it said, our towels are 100% cotton. Should you wish to purchase a set, they are available in the gift store. Should you prefer the set in your bathroom, a $75 charge will automatically be added to your bill. You know, so in other words, they're saying, if you steal the towels, we're going to charge you $75. So I stole the sign. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny, and I brought it home, and Michelle and I put it in the guest bathroom. <laughs> really. And we had it there for a few years until, until I got this call. And I told the Oprah producer this, and she goes, perfect. You'll come on this show, you'll tell that story, we'll have a box, and you'll drop the sign in the box, and we'll send it back to the Hyatt people, and it'll be perfect. And I go, great, okay, I'm going to be on Oprah. Problem was, I was in St. Louis, the sign was in Miami, and the show was the next day in Chicago. So there's no way to get the sign to Chicago in time. And then I realized something. I was staying in another Hyatt hotel. <laughs> so I stole another sign. And it was not, it wasn't the same sign. It was like a no smoking sign, but I, I figured no one could tell. And so that's what I did. The next day when the Oprah show told me, hey, and they dropped a sign in the thing. So my point is, <laughs> we're here at a conference about the nature of truth. <laughs> to get on the Oprah show, I stole two signs and lied, lied about it. So anyway. So I, I just finished my book tour for Swamp Story, which is actually in its native habitat there. They, the workers come and pluck it off the side of, this, of the stream like that. And yes, the mountains are upside down in Miami. That's where I live. Um, they'll get that fixed. Um, anyway, it's a novel. It's set in the Everglades near where I live. I live in Miami, 
I moved there in 1986 from the United States. And <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to go into the, my book. It's a novel. It's about insane people doing insane things in an insane place. It's a lot like uh, The Covenant of Water, really. It's pretty much... <laughs> And I'm sure Oprah would like it just as much if she were to. <laughs> no, so anyway, I live in Miami. Michelle lives in Miami. Michelle's from Miami. She's Cuban Jewish. Uh, that's what they're Jubans, they call themselves. And they didn't come on rafts, they parted the Caribbean, those people. <laughs> Miami and Sun Valley really have a lot in common. No, really, Miami has abundant sunshine, and Sun Valley has abundant sunshine. Miami has a rich, ethnic, diverse culture. Sun Valley has abundant sunshine, so <laughs> list goes on and on of all the similarities. I'm sort of an ambassador for Miami, it's sort of a bad reputation. When they do polls, people always say they think of my, you know, they like, think it might be fun to go there, but they think it's a dangerous and violent place, and we, you know, that hurts us when we, you know, we want to track those people down and kill them, because... <laughs> It's really not, it's a wonderful city, and it's not as dangerous as people think. We have a new attitude there, new tourism promotion slogan. Come back to Miami. We weren't shooting at you. So. <laughs> but it does have a bad reputation. And really, the whole state of Florida uh, now has kind of a bad reputation. It started with the, uh, the 2000 uh, presidential election. I assume you all remember that because you're old. But it, <laughs> 2000 presidential election, Bush-Gore, and it was a close election, and then it comes an election night, and they're tallying it up, and all the other states are able to determine, using arithmetic, <laughs> whom they had voted for, but Florida was unable to figure this out, and it turned out it mattered. I mean, it mattered a lot. Whoever won Florida was going to win the presidency, and as the night wore on, first they called it for Bush, then they called it for Gore. Then he called it for Bush again. Then for a little while, I think William Shatner was in the lead, you know. <laughs> and then by morning, it was just a disaster. Like, they just didn't know, and they weren't going to know for weeks. And they kept showing those guys in Palm Beach looking at these ballots that appeared to have been chewed by weasels, you know. And, <laughs> and it was just agony for those of us who lived in Florida because the whole world was watching and seeing this incompetent bunch of baboons. And that began the whole meme of Florida being the dumb state, the moron state. And it led to this whole Florida man thing. We, you know, like all these weird people do things in Florida. It's always Florida man does this, Florida man does that. And so now we've reached the point, wherever, wherever you go, if you're from Florida, people just give you that look. You know, like, why, why are you there? You know? And it's really not fair. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Florida's 21 million residents. 21 million. Is it fair to judge 21 million people because of the actions of 19 million people? <laughs> no, it's not fair. Two million of us should be let off the hook. And, and there's another reason I say this, and I'll give you the, I'll explain it anecdotally why it's unfair to blame all Floridians for all the things that go on in Florida. This is a story. It's a true story. You may have heard of this story. It was pretty famous. Two people, namely Carl Hyacinth, my friend, and me, both wrote books that started with this anecdote because independent of each other, we thought, wow, that's pretty great. Um, but it's a true story. It was international news when it happened. Uh, what happened was there's this woman driving south on the overseas highway that connects the mainland Florida to Key West, this beautiful drive. 
down the Keys to Key West. And um, there's a Florida State Highway Patrol report that was written about the incident that occurred, very detailed report. What, everything I'm telling you here was in that report. Uh, she's in a hurry to get to Key West because she wants to see her boyfriend. And she wants to look good for him, so she decides to groom herself. Specifically, she decides to shave her bikini region. <laughs> now, some people would pull over to the side of the road. <laughs> but I say, this woman was in a hurry. So she decided to, and this is all in the Highway Patrol report, she decided to outsource the steering to her passenger, who was, and this is one of the things that made this story so Florida, her ex-husband. <laughs> it's all true. So she's going south about 40 miles an hour. Uh, she is operating the accelerator, but not looking at the road because she's shaving her bikini region. Her passenger is steering the car. What could possibly go wrong? As it happened, the car in front of her slowed to make a turn. She slammed into it 40 miles an hour, and that was the accident that was reported in great detail by the Florida State Highway Patrol, then reported by the Miami Herald, and from there to the world. Everybody loved that story. Every morning talk show, every late night comic, every other newspaper, everybody did that story. And it all came back to Florida. These morons in Florida. Do you remember this woman in Florida? She's shaving herself, she's driving to Florida, 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 Florida. That woman was from Indiana. <laughs> She was shaving her Hoosier. <laughs> you ever wondered what that expression? But we get the blame. Florida gets the blame. We can't help it if people come there. If we're like the Ellis Island for weird, stupid people. They come there and they keep coming. They keep coming. Everybody laughs at us and mocks. We're doing everything we can to stop them. We are raising the sea levels. It's not working. <laughs> They're still coming. And now Florida's become a big political issue, partly because of our governor. Our governor has decided to take on an insidious threat to America, Disney. <laughs> God knows we need him to protect. But that's part of the whole kind of ugly political situation we're in now in this country. And it is ugly. A lot of people have been talking about it at this very uh, writer's conference. The division, Judy Woodruff was talking about the division in this country. And uh, what are we going to do about it? Everybody hates everybody. Um, nobody's satisfied with the options. I've been hearing that a lot right here at this conference. The analogy I like to draw the Republicans and the Democrats, like, um, let's say you are in a car and you break down on the side of the road. Republicans are going to go right past you. go, hey. Learn to fix that yourself. You'll be better off for you. You'll be more self-reliant. It'll help you, right? Go on by. Democrats will stop to help you, but they will make it worse. <laughs> Ointment or suppository, you know? Those are our choices in America. And in the upcoming election, 
it's very likely that our choice this year, once again, is going to be between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, and people are not happy about that. Um, I, I'll start with, with Donald Trump. Uh, I don't know about you saw the news today, latest indictment, a uh, series of liquor store robberies he's involved with. <laughs> He's saying the videos were faked by the deep state, you know, it's a witch hunt, you know, but, um, but he's an angry man. Donald Trump's an angry man. He's, he feels very strongly, and he's getting constitutional legal advice from the MyPillow guy, <laughs> that, that he won the 2020 election. And he, like, will not drop that, that he won the 2020 election. Will not drop it. I have a solution to that problem, which I will share with you now. I don't know what the legal mechanism would be, but we somehow get that issue. Did he or did he not win the 2020 election before the United States Supreme Court? And we have them hold on to it until just before the next election, and then right after the election say, he's right, he won. And he's now done with his two terms. <laughs> Thank you for your service, you know? <laughs> anyway, so that's one choice. The other choice, Joe Biden seems like a very nice man, but he, he gives the impression that he's, he's finding out what's going on as he reads it on the teleprompter. He's like, always kind of like looking, so it's good to be here in China. <laughs> oh, Virginia. China is the other one. I was raised in China. That's kind of like, and then they, you know, the, the, the tranquilizer dart hits him in the neck and they get him off, you know. <laughs> These are our choices. And America's not happy with it. And we need something else. And that's why I'm glad to announce to you, and I will, when I, ever I'm done, I will pause for your spontaneous applause. I'm running for president. <laughs> Thank you. It really wasn't that long, an applause. No, never mind. Like... So I'm going to start, and I think I owe this to you, by telling you where I stand. And I want to warn you, in case you're a fragile flower, I don't hold back. I say what I think. I lay it on the line. I don't like, have to take a poll to know where I stand, okay? I agree with you. on everything. <laughs> if you change your mind, let me know. That's the kind of leadership I would provide. No, if I were the president, my press secretary, I don't know if she's still here. Dee Dee Myers, is Dee still here? She's been around. There she is. I'm going to ask her right now, would you be my press secretary? Because I'll tell you all you have to do. If, okay, if I'm the president of the United States, Dee Dee Myers, my press secretary, veteran. Well, we all love her. Everybody loves her. And she would come out before the press with a giant binder, the briefing binder, which would actually be a refrigerator repair manual. <laughs> and she would take questions, and whatever question they had, like they would say, well, what is, you know, the Barry administration policy regarding the Uyghurs? And then Didi would open the, the book and pour through it, and she'd go, you tell me. <laughs> that would be our answer to everything. 
Right? And then Dee Dee, yeah, she's already in. You could have a margarita before you had, you know, went out and did it. Not, a, not just the after, anyway. So, okay. But I do have some specifics. I want to talk a little bit about uh, foreign policy. And, and people say, what do you know about foreign policy? I know a few things. I'm going to start with Russia. We have a lot of issues with Russia. We're sort of in a proxy war with Russia now. And I have some experience with Russia. I actually went to Russia with Ridley Pearson. Uh, some year, how many years ago was that, Rid? It was like eight years ago. We went to Russia together. Our, the, State, the United States State Department sent, <laughs> sent me and Ridley to Russia in this program that was supposed to improve relationships. <laughs> See how that worked out, right? But it was a little bit scary. After we agreed to do it, they gave us this briefing thing. It was like a big thing, a security briefing. And it was like all these things that could happen to us. And I said, like, we had a lot of incidents. And uh, you're, you're going to be under surveillance for sure. Uh, very likely that your hotel room will be bugged. And there might, might even be cameras in your hotel room. Any phone call you make will be listened in. Your, your um, computer will un unquestionably be uh, hacked. And uh, you may even be hacked on the street, um, and if, you know, here's what you need to do if you get in trouble. And all those things did happen to us, uh, but we, did, we had kind of an interesting time over there. We enjoyed ourselves. We're in a proxy war, and I don't think that's good enough. And yeah, this may offend you, I'm sorry if it does, but I think we need to get tough with the Russians. I need, we, we take bombers, big bombers, we fly them over Russia, we open the bomb door, and we drop lawyers. <laughs> we got them, let's use them. If that didn't work, I would drop more lawyers. If that didn't work, I would put parachutes on the lawyers. <laughs> I am legally obligated to make a lawyer joke. I'm a humor columnist, okay? Anyway. Education. What would I do about education? It's a disgrace in this country. We spend a ton of money per student on public education in this country, and our kids do not stack up against foreign kids and standardized tests. Year after year, this, this is shown to be true. We spend more and more money. Our kids do worse and worse on standardized tests than foreign kids. If I were the president, I would do something about that, and I would put the responsibility where it belonged. I would get these kids out of here and bring in some foreign kids who could get the job done. I would also change the way we pay for education in this country, which is a ridiculous way we pay for it now with this is like a bizarre jerry-rigged system of taxes. I would do this. On the first day of school, any school district in the country, I would have all the parents come in to an auditorium, sit them down, and say to them, if you don't give us the money we need to run the schools this year, we're going to hold a science fair. They'll get the money. They'll sell crack if they have to, because first thing you learn as a parent is your student doesn't do the science fair project. You do the science fair project. I learned that when our daughter was in second grade and competing children were coming in working cold fusion reactors, you know. That's a... Healthcare. What would I do about healthcare in this country? A um, couple things. First of all, I don't really care what else we do about uh, the, the medical profession, but they need to find a way to get to the prostate gland other than the way they're getting to it now. 
People say, what do you want? Well, I'll tell you what guys want. We want a system where the doctor stands 85 yards away and goes, looks good from here, Dave. Um, I don't really want to, I, I, I shouldn't, men, I mean, we really have nothing to complain about invasive medical procedures uh, compared with what women routinely have to undergo. I understand that. I've seen childbirth at close range a couple of times. Uh, you couldn't get me to do that. Um, <laughs> what, what always bothered me the most about it is like when women are, I think women are naturally more modest than, than men. And you know, like when they're in this like very vulnerable state and their contractions are exhausted, and they put them in this position that could not have been thought of by a woman. There's absolutely nothing left of the imagination. Then they bring people from all over the hospitals <laughs> to take a gander, you know? Like, what do you say, Bob? Does that look like five centimeters to you? I don't know, man. I'm a janitor, but, you know. Like, <laughs> oh, look, we got a school tour group here. Your kid's learning the metric system, you know. Okay, we're done. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. To learn more about the Sun Valley Writers Conference, please visit our website at svwc.com. And if you'd like to support what we do, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate it very much. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and thanks for listening. Thank you.